Well, we are in chapter 32 of the book of Job. We've worked through 31 of the 42 chapters of this book. This book, which tells the story of a man named Job. It doesn't tell the life story of Job. It tells the story of the, well, really the worst year of his life. The book of Job tells the story of the worst year of Job's life. Worst because of tragedy. It was a tragic year for Job. He lost everything this year. His wealth was stolen from him. His children, all ten of them, seven sons and three daughters were killed in a windstorm. He feels abandoned by his wife. He feels ignored by God. And then in the midst of all of this, during this worst year of his life, he develops a life-threatening illness. He had three friends who did not ignore or abandon him, unfortunately. They came and they started really well. They were sitting with Job in silence for an entire week, waiting on him, caring for him. But then they made the mistake, these friends did, of speaking up. Once they started, they were hard to stop. That's most of this book of Job. For 28 chapters, Job and his friends went round and round and round. And these friends, they overestimated their grasp of truth. They made some wrong assumptions about God, and they ended up, at least according to Job, offering miserable comfort and reckless counsel. So as we come up now on chapter 32, Job has just given his final, his final speech of the book, chapter 29, 30, and 31. That is his last speech. Those are his dying Words, his dying testimony. I imagine that at the conclusion of chapter 31, at the conclusion of that dying testimony, that Job is completely exhausted. And he is ready to die. And he's ready to face God. He's probably, because of his suffering, eager to die, and eager to face God. And he's thankful, he's thankful for the long-awaited silence of his companions. It's been so difficult for Job going round and round with these three friends while he's battling his sickness and dealing with everything that he's lost And so the silence would be a break for this exhausted man. Well, the silence is very brief. The silence is very brief, and then another voice broke through. Chapter 32, verse 6. I am young in years, and you are aged Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I can picture Job rolling his eyes at that point. Oh, brother. Just when you, when you think it's over and the onslaught is done and it's quiet. And this is a guy we don't even know about yet. And here comes this voice saying, hey, I'm really young and you're really old, and so I was timid to speak, but now I really feel like I've got to get my opinion out. So Job is out of gas at this point. He's ready to die, and here comes, you ready? The longest speech of the entire book. 
Six chapters. Six chapters, 32 through 37. And the speaker's name is Elihu. Elihu is young. He's a young man. He's new to us, but apparently he has been sitting by and he's been listening to Job and his friends. And he has finally worked up the courage to speak. And once he starts, he's very hard to stop. So, get comfortable. Elihu is the the wordiest and windiest character in the entire book of Job. So this morning, his speech is going to be our focus. I'm going to work, I think, fairly quickly through a lot of material to sort of summarize what we have in these six chapters. And I'm going to work through that quickly to get to what are two great things that Elihu has to say. Two great gems in his speech. But to get there, we'll have to move through a lot of material quickly. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, help us this morning as we come before you and before your word. And we ask that you would... Use your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds that we would understand and spiritually discern your word and be helped and be changed for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, would you please open your Bible to Job chapter 32. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find that chapter on page 280. So on page 280, we have the book of Job, chapter 32. And here we have Elihu. He's a young man, and we will see that he is burning with anger. He's burning with anger, which incidentally is not usually the best time to speak up. Have you ever known that you should say something and you, you don't say it and you don't say it and you don't say it and then you get angry and then you say it and it often doesn't come out the way you wanted it to? That may be what happens here with Elihu. He is fuming. He's fuming. He, he says so. So why is he fuming? Why is he so angry? Let's read verses 2 through 5. Verses 2 through 5 of chapter 32. Why is he angry? Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So he's angry at everybody. He disagrees with everybody. First, he's angry at Job. We're told that in verse 2. And he's angry at Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. Job, you're declaring your innocence here and not God's innocence. That's Elihu's opinion. Job, you're declaring your rightness, but you're not declaring God's rightness. And this angered Elihu. So that's his beef with Job. He's also angry at Job's friends. Look at verse 3. Why is he angry with Job's friends? Because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. In other words, the three friends, you know this if you've read the book of Job or been tracking with us, the three friends, they point out the wrong that they think Job must have done 
before his suffering. But here's Elihu's problem with them. But they don't point out the wrong that Job is doing during his suffering, which is this, according to Elihu, this justifying himself rather than God. So he's mad at the friends because you're talking about some suffering that he or some sin that he must have committed, some wrong that he did way back then before his suffering. But you're not addressing, in his opinion, the wrong that Job is doing right now, right here in front of us. And the wrong, according to Elihu, is he's declaring his own rightness and not God's. He's declaring his own innocence and not God's. So he's angry at these three men for not responding to that, for not answering Job. He'll say in chapter 32, verse 12, look down just a few verses. Behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. So Elihu's going to answer and he's going to speak for a long time. Some commentators think there are four speeches here. But they all sort of run together in one long speech. Chapter 32 is a sort of introduction to what he's going to say. And then chapters 33 through 37 are his actual speech. And so what we find out in his introductory remarks there in chapter 32 is that he's been, he's been sort of sitting in the corner watching. Everything that's happened, he's, he's been watching this unfold and he's been biting his tongue, apparently, the whole time, but he gets to a point. Have you ever gotten to a point like this? He's biting his tongue. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I, I can't say this. Someone else, I'm sure, is going to say it. And he gets to a point where he just, he bubbles over. He cannot keep quiet anymore. Listen to how he describes it in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 32. For I am full of words. Yes, he is. I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I'm going to I'm going to bust. If I don't say what's on my mind right now, if I don't let this out, then he's going to speak. So how are we to value Elihu's words? There's a lot of words here. Some think, and people have been divided over Elihu for centuries, some think that he just comes in and beats a dead horse. He just says the same thing that the friends have said in different ways and takes a long time to say it. Others see Elihu as a breath of fresh air. It's tricky to figure it out. He's difficult to understand. He's kind of all over the place. Job will not respond to him. Maybe more significantly, God will not respond to him. God will not even mention him. And that's either an indication of affirmation or rejection. Sometimes when God is silent after someone speaks, it means that he's ignoring them and rejecting what they've said. But sometimes if he's not disagreeing, it's an affirmation. If he disagreed, he'd say something, right? So it's difficult to try and discern how are we to value Elihu's words. Either way, he gives us in these chapters actually a little break. It's like an interlude. It's a break before God literally storms in. I like this guy. Not that that means anything. I like him. He is wordy. He's a little arrogant. He's very opinionated. But... But he's a man of conviction. And so he speaks up. I like that about Elihu. He, I do think he gets some things wrong. And we'll look at that. But I think especially for his young age, he has some remarkable things to say. 
D.A. Carson calls him a wise man in the making. I think that's right. He's not a wise man yet. But he is a wise man in the making. And he has some wise things to say. So what does he say? His speech, I said this, really begins in chapter 33. So listen to the first seven verses of chapter 33. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Now you see what I mean by wordy? He just took 111 words to say, listen. And I counted them. 111 words to say, listen. This is, this is this is wordy. He rambles at times. Tell you a quick funny story. We were sitting around our dinner table last night. We were playing a, a game. We were playing a game. It's called uh, speeches. So I was explaining the way the game worked with, with our kids. I said, okay, here's what you, you're going to do. Each of you are going to have 30 seconds. And in those 30 seconds, we're going to give you a topic and you have to give a speech on that topic. And, and really what, what it is, it's going to be the art of rambling. And for those 30 seconds, you cannot say the word um. You cannot say the word like. And there can't be any pauses. Which is really difficult to do. Some of you just said like, totally. <laughs> so so you've got to ramble for 30 seconds. And so we like to, we, we tease each other in our family. We know each other well. We know our quirks and we love each other in spite of them. And so we, you know, we tease and we laugh together. It's one of the things we do. So one of my, one of my boys looks at me and says, oh, so it's like preaching. <laughs> That's pretty good. Then the other boy said, dad just got roasted. I did. I got roasted. It was pretty funny. I'm known for being sort of wordy in our, in our house. So that's how he opens up. That's one of the issues with Elihu. He's a wordy guy. But then in verse 9, he gets right to the point, to the problem he's got with Job. So read with me beginning in verse 9 of chapter 33. You, that's Job he's talking to, say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. So, this is Elihu explaining what he meant back in chapter 32, verse 2. When he said that he was angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. What do you mean by that, Elihu? This is where he explains it. These are the words that Job has said that he has a problem with. This is where he feels like Job is justifying himself rather than God. Specifically, the words he has a problem with is what he has heard Job say about Job and what he has heard Job say about God. Look with me at those verses again. Verse 9, here is what Job had said about Job, according to Elihu. You say, Job, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. And then verses 10 and 11, here is what Job had said about God. Behold, he, God, Job's talking about God, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He, God, 
puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. And then here's the rebuke in verse 12. Behold, in this, in this, what you've said about yourself and what you've said about God, you are not right. I will answer you for God is greater than man. I think I agree with Elihu. What about you? Do you agree with what Elihu is saying here? In verses 9 through 12? I mean, don't get me wrong, and if you've been here in weeks past, you, you know this. Job has been faithful, for sure. He has kept his face toward God. He is, according to God, a blameless and upright man. And his suffering right now, it is not the result of some past hidden sin. All that is true. But, but he has sinned during his suffering, hasn't he? I mean, he's been faithful. We've looked at this. He's been an example to us, but he hasn't done this perfectly. He has sinned in his suffering. At the very least, hasn't he overstated his innocence? Has he maybe overstated his innocence? I mean, by the end of chapter 31, I mean, honestly, weren't we all a little tired of hearing him declare his innocence? We get it, Job. I don't know if you felt like that. And hasn't he at least timed, at, at times spoken disrespectfully toward God? Haven't you read him say things and you sort of braced yourself or were uncomfortable with the way he was talking to God? I think at times he has crossed some lines and been disrespectful to God. I think he has overstated his innocence. Elihu seems to see that. So I understand his rebuke here, and I think it agrees with God's rebuke of Job, which we'll look at next week. I think it agrees with what God says to Job. Elihu is unknowingly, of course, he's not doing this on purpose, but he is preparing the way for God. He's like God's opening act before God comes on the stage. Elihu is right when he says, Job, you've overstated your innocence. And Elihu is right when he says, you, you've made some, you've assumed some wrong things about God. He has done that. God's ways, Job, Elihu is saying, God's ways are higher than your ways, Job. I think he's right. Here's a couple things God will say shortly when he comes to Job. And it sounds like Elihu. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 8. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder, he's talking to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? There's what Elihu is saying. Will you condemn me, God, so that you, Job, may be in the right? Chapter 41, verse 10. Who then is he who can stand before me, God says. Now, to me, that sounds like Elihu in verse 12. That's how I'm measuring Elihu's rebuke here. So I do think that Elihu is off to a good start. I hope you would agree. In these verses, specifically 9 through 12, he is off to a good start. But, like Job, Elihu goes too far. He goes too far. He should have stopped. He should have stopped at verse 12 and then just elaborated on the greatness of God, which he will spend a lot of time doing. Instead, he, he goes off the rails. Elihu is actually harder. On, think about this. Elihu is harder on Job than God will be on Job. 
God is not going to go on and on about what Job has done. or God is not going to go off on Job. God will go on and on about God, you'll see. He's going to go on and on about, here's what Elihu said that was good, the greatness of God. That's how God is going to respond. That's what Elihu should have done. Let me give you some examples, just a couple verses of Elihu going too far. We don't have time to read through all these chapters this morning. You can read them on your own. But here's just an example of Elihu going too far. Chapter 34, verse 7 and 8. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? That's not Job. That's not Job. Or verses 36 and verse 37 of chapter 34. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. And what had Elihu said back in chapter 33 verse 7? My pressure will not be heavy upon you. That sounds like some pressure. That's heavy. Is Elihu, when he speaks harshly to Job like this, is Elihu taking into account what Job has been through? My goodness. Would you confront Job like this? Think of everything that he'd been through. I asked myself this. Job overstates his innocence. Would Job have declared his innocence so much if he wasn't under continuous attack from his prosperity gospel preaching friends? Which is really what you have. His words only equal their words as he's defending himself. So it's tough to know. If, if they weren't continually saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You did bad, that's why bad is here. Now do good and you'll get your family back. You know, this prosperity gospel. I mean, what would you do if you had Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer telling you to just... Grab your prayer cloth, lay your hands on the TV set and confess your secret sin and everything will get back to the way it was. I mean, you might say something like this. So I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to balance this. There's some good things that he says and, and there's a way to say those things, but then there's, there's unnecessary harshness with a man like Job. So, I would go easy on Job. I have gone easy on Job, and maybe you have when you've been sitting with people who, there's some things they're not doing right. There's sin that needs to be confronted. But then when you take into account maybe what's gone on in their life the last year and a half or two years, you're merciful. You don't sweep anything under the carpet, but you're merciful. You're gentle. You're tender. You're patient. That's lacking in Elihu. Job has been through so much. He stayed faithful. You can track and see that he affirms truth all the way through. Job is never declaring utter innocence, but rather particular innocence. He's saying that he is innocent of any crime deserving this punishment, of any sin that is causing this suffering. And we know from God that he's right. That's not why he's suffering. Now, we wanted to move through that quickly. Because all that said about Elihu and about his misplaced tone, he is on the right track. 
So don't, don't lose that. He is on the right track, and he is going to prepare the way for God to come in and confront Job. There is something in Job that is going to need correction. And Elihu, he's on to it. He is. He's seeing something. It's true. Job has remained faithful, but through his suffering, some sin has, has emerged. And it's what he talks about in those verses 9 through 12. It's as if, it's as if Job is like a bottle of water. He's a bottle of water that for his life before this point where he's suffering has been sitting on a table and over time some sin had settled like sediment on the very bottom of his life and you can't even see it. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He's turned away from evil. But that, of course, doesn't mean he's without sin. But it's just sort of settled at the bottom. Tragedy, ultimately from God's hand, we know, tragedy has shaken Job's life. It has shaken the water bottle. And what has happened is that some of that sedimentary sin has been revealed. You can see it now. It's one of the things that suffering does. It brings this to the surface. And Elihu spots it. And so far, no one else has. So he is unknowingly preparing the way for God. In fact, this is, this is really cool. If you were to, or when you read through his speech, if you haven't already, and you get to chapter 35 and 36 and 37, as Elihu wraps up his speech, a storm blows in. Of course, God is bringing this storm in. And then God's voice literally comes out of the storm. So Elihu is part of that. So here's ultimately where we wanted to get this morning. Here are two great gems from Elihu, from this wise man in the making. Two truths to be thankful for. Two truths that I'm sure Job was thankful for. Number one, God is great. God is great. Listen to Elihu again in chapter 33, verse 12. Behold, in this, Job, you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. That's really his point. God is great. When the faithful are suffering, that is what they need to know. When a Christian is suffering, that is what they need to know. If you're a Christian, when you suffer, this is first and foremost what you need to know, that God is great. This is what the faithful need to remember when suffering comes. God is great. This is what the faithful like you and me need to be reminded of when we are suffering. God is great. In other words, he's not dropping the ball. He's not screwing this up. He's not overlooking you. He's not forgetting you. He's not making a mistake. God can be trusted. 
Because when you're suffering, you feel like God can't be trusted. That's the temptation. I don't know if God can be trusted, if this is what He's going to do to me, or what He's going to allow to come into my life, or allow to come into the lives of people that I love, and it feels like He's dropping the ball. What do people in the Bible say when they're suffering? What do people in your church say when they're suffering? God, where are you? Remember me, O God. Answer my prayer, O God. Look down on me, O God. Help me, God. Because it feels like God is dropping the ball. It feels like He's stepped out on a break. It feels like He doesn't care, like He's not loved. So what do we need to be reminded of? That God is great. God is in control. God is the author of every detail of your life. That's what Elihu will go on to talk about. It's what God is going to go on and talk about. Your life is a story. And God is the author. All of life is a story. And God is the author. Every page is written by Him. And it has a perfect, perfect ending. God is great. And we forget that. We need to be reminded of His greatness. That word great is often misused or overused by us. Elihu and God will take chapters to explain what they mean by God is great. Here's a few of Elihu's words. For example, chapter 34, verses 13 through 15, talking about the greatness of God. Who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Verse 30, chapter 35, verse 5. To Job, Elihu says, Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. You see what he's doing? That doesn't make sense to some of you. This seems to miss the mark to some of you. Elihu, hello. What does that have to do with anything? Job is suffering, and you just told him to look at the clouds. What does that have to do with anything? I think you're missing the mark. How is that kind of counseling? You need to have him lay down on a couch and tell you about his childhood. This is not how you handle Someone who's suffering. But that's what Elihu does. He says, look up at the clouds and just look at how high up in the air the clouds are. What's he doing? He's he's trying to get Job's focus on the greatness of God. How did he start this all off? He says, Job, you're in the wrong. God is greater than you. He's greater than you. Chapter 36, verse 22 and 23. It's it's more of this. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who is prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Chapter 37, verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. God is great, Job. God is great, Job. God is greater than you, Job. He can be trusted, Job. This is what the faithful need to hear when they're suffering. We're tempted to say so many other things. There's other good things we can say, of course. But this is something that needs to be said. This is something that needs to be understood. We want to tell people that everything's going to be okay. And it 
if you're talking to a Christian, that's true, ultimately. But I think we usually mean when we say that, that this particular circumstance that you're going through in this life, it's going to work out and be okay in this life. And we have no basis for saying that. I've said that to people and regretted saying that because years later they're, they're still suffering. It's not okay. I wonder if they feel lied to by me. We want to jump ahead and, and, and you, know, you have the last page of the book and say, see, look, this is how it's actually going to go and it's going to work out and you lost this job because this one's waiting for you and it's better and, and she walked out on you because this is what's in your future and your children in rebellion, but down here, look how it's going to come together and, and on and on and on, right? We want to be able to go to the last page and, and see that, but instead... We need to trust the author. No, God is great. And I'm a character in this story. And, and of course, I can't, I can't jump off the page and read the book. But I know that he's in control. I know that he's great. And I know ultimately, I know ultimately how the story ends. And it's the best ending. It's perfect. So Job needs to know this, that God is great. He's going to learn and needs to learn that God is not obligated to answer questions or respond to demands and explain himself. And we do this all the time with God. God, you owe me an explanation. Really? (laughs) Why is that? He he doesn't. He doesn't owe me. He's good and he's great, and I've got to trust him. So hard sometimes, but I've got to trust him. He doesn't owe Job an explanation. It is not essential, friends, it is not essential for you and me to understand. God understands. God understands. God knows what he is doing. And so, so often I need to do what Job will do, and I just need to put my hand over my mouth. I just need to put my hand over my mouth and just say, okay, I've got to stop talking. God is great, and I'm not great. He's infinite, and I'm finite. He's, he's perfect, and I'm a sinner. And I'm just, I'm just rambling here. God, I just need to trust you. I need to be reminded that you're great. It applies across the board. It's for every single one of us. It's for all of us in any and every circumstance. Anything we might face, God is great. What a gem from Elihu. Thankful that Elihu responded this way. God is great said there was two. There's, there's, there might be more. These are two that we're looking at. Number two, suffering is for the good of God's people. Suffering is for the good of God's people. And we say this so, over and over again. It's one of those things I think that needs to be pounded into our head over and over again that we doubt, that I doubt. But it's true. Suffering is for the good of God's people. That is profound, and that is right. And that is something that Job had not been told up until this point. That suffering was for his good. His friends, remember, their explanation for his suffering is that God is punishing you. He's angry and punishing you. Get your act together. Confess this secret hidden sin and everything will go back to normal. Job doesn't have an answer for the suffering. It just feels arbitrary. He doesn't think it's punishment, but it just feels arbitrary to Job. Just inexplicable. Elihu's explanation for Job's suffering is it's for your good, Job. And that's profound and it's right. It's for your good, Job. And listen to this. He, he says it beautifully. This wise man in the making. Listen to how he says to Job that this suffering, it's for your good, Job. If you want to read with me, chapter 36. Chapter 36, verses 6 through 15. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. 
He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. That's Elihu saying to Job, he hears you, Job. He's with you, Job. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction. That's Job. That's Job. He is caught in the cords of affliction. Then he, that's God, declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. And now here, beginning in verse 12, here are the effects of suffering on the wicked. The unfaithful, those who don't love God. And then he'll get to the effect of suffering on the faithful and the righteous. And the effects of suffering are very different on the ungodly and on the godly. First, the ungodly. But if, these are the wicked, they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. So again, God is bringing affliction and bringing suffering to teach something. It's for good. And some do not listen. And they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. And now verse 15. Here are the effects of suffering on the righteous. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. That's poetry. Let's read it again more slowly. He delivers the afflicted. Okay, how? I'm afflicted. Job is afflicted. You're afflicted. I'm suffering. Job is suffering. You're suffering. God, deliver me from this suffering. How does God deliver us from suffering? He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. And opens their ear by adversity. He uses the affliction. To rescue you. To deliver you. To sanctify you. To make you more joyful. To make you love him more. John Piper said. Elihu's teaching then. Is that. Affliction makes a righteous person sensitive to his remaining sinfulness and helps him hate it and renounce it. The psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 119.71. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. There are dimensions of godliness that the righteous can only learn through Affliction. Elihu is saying to Job, Job, this suffering is for your good. It's not punishment. It's not arbitrary. It's intended. It's purposed for your good. It's for your good, Job. It is a fire. But it is a fire to refine you, not destroy you. Two different uses of fire, right? Fire is used to refine gold. It's also used to destroy. Job, God is refining you. It's the same thing said in Isaiah 48.10. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, God says, 
I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Same thing Elihu is saying. What God says through the prophet Isaiah. I am refining you, and I'm refining you through the furnace of affliction. Now, I know that's not how you want to be refined, and that's not how I want to be refined. I don't want to be refined in a furnace of affliction. I want to be refined on a merry-go-round <laughs> at a carnival with cotton candy and sunshine and butterflies. That's how I want to be refined. But there's where God's ways are greater than my ways. A merry-go-round is not going to work. It's not going to work. A furnace of affliction. Here's another place Elihu describes suffering as good for the righteous, for the believer. Listen again. Here he is in chapter 33, verses 19 through 30. This is the last chunk of text that we'll look at. Now listen for it. Elihu saying, Job, this suffering is for your good. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. That's Job. Again, he's describing Job. If, if God would do this, Elihu says, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, which Job has asked for, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then... Man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He, that's man now, sings before men and says. Now, before we read that, are you tracking with it? Elihu says God will rebuke, he will correct, he will sanctify, he will help his people through suffering. And it can get really bad, like it's gotten with you, Job. Like your bones are sticking out, and you don't even want to eat, and you've lost everything. And Job already knows that God is ultimately behind that. So that's you, Job, but then God will use that, and he'll rescue you from that. He'll deliver you from that. And when God does that for a Christian, the Christian, after that, he sings. What is he saying? I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He'll sing the gospel. He'll sing the gospel. I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. I'm a sinner, and I've been saved by grace, by un deserved favor. He's singing at the end of this. Job is not singing right now. A dirge at best. He's not singing. He says, Job, the suffering is for your good. Here's what God is doing. And he doesn't get into the details rightly. But in the end, you're going to sing. And so at the end of the suffering, he's singing. What does he sing? What does the Christian sing after his suffering? I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. In other words, that suffering, Christian, after you've suffered, that suffering was so hard. It's not denying that. That suffering was so painful. That suffering almost killed me. It was so hard. It was so painful. It was so light and so momentary considering what I deserve. 
That's the song that's echoed in the New Testament. Oh God, my sin has not been repaid to me. The wicked suffer and suffer and suffer. The righteous, he's being told, suffer and sing. The suffering is used to rescue, to deliver. And then those last three verses, 28 through 30, the song goes on. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. In conclusion, let me read you a poem written by John Newton. You know who John Newton is and he wrote a song called Amazing Grace and Lots of other songs that we sing and poems. And he wrote a poem called Prayer Answered by Crosses. And it's a poem he wrote about sanctification and God's way of sanctifying a Christian. So the poem is, I, I pray that God would refine me. And he brings suffering into my life. So listen to how he words this. There's seven verses. Let me read this and then I'll be done. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek earnestly more his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more With his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I now employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We do know that our greatest good is you. We do know that we will be most joyful in you, we'll be most satisfied in you, we'll be most content in you, we'll be most filled with life and love in you, God. So, Lord, help us and all the other things that we pursue and love more than you. God, we're thankful for the way you deal with us, that you're not content for us to have a mediocre joy, but that you want our joy to be full, 
And we know that our joy will only be full as we know that you are great. That you are greater than we are, that your ways are greater than our ways, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Help us, Lord, to rest in these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.